Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Will I get along with him? I have no idea. He's a killer, though. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You get a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? Welcome to Politics, a podcast about the continual coronation of Emperor Trump. My name is Tim Bat, and I live in New Zealand. Hello, I'm Jeb London. I live in Florida, but I like to think that I'm a citizen of the world. Do you know what's going to unite um, the two of us, Jeb, what we're going to have in common very soon, is with um, a complete abandonment of science and a silencing of um, all climate change uh, scientists and statisticians. You and I are going to be underwater like first the places where we live are going to be the most screwed the most early right yeah i think so Uh, i mean uh like my part of florida is not as bad off as as south florida like the miami beach area but we're not far behind um you know just getting getting an extra 10 feet of water will get you pretty far inland in this state i actually thought you were going to say that that we were going to have a lot in common because i was going to have to follow in the footsteps of many silicon valley silicon valley billionaires like peter Thiel. And yeah. seek asylum in New Zealand, uh, and then that's we... actually that's our whole game plan. We're trying to um, produce a whole lot of propaganda showing how beautiful we are as a country to these billionaires, get them to bring their yachts over here, and then we're going to use their money and brain power to build an Atlantis-style uh, escape pod, which will be under the ocean, which we will be very soon. So um, everything's coming up Millhouse over here. Come join us. The water isn't fine. See, um, my, my yes. suggestion, if I may, is what you do is you, you let them ship their yachts over there, then you nationalize their yachts, and then when they show mm-hmm. up, you put them in, in uh, detention camps and say that they're... The yachts? No, are not the yachts. Torture, the, are we going to waterboard yachts? I don't think that's going to be effective. Well, you can't waterboard a yacht. Water, I mean, most yachts are, are have boards, and that's they're what already... I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like... It's like trying to sandblast a sandcastle. It's just coals to Newcastle right there. I mean, why? anyway. Um, no, but what you do is you, you, you put the, uh, uh, the Silicon Valley billionaires in uh, detention camps, and then you basically uh, pretend that you never took their citizenship or accepted it and say that they are stateless actors because their billionaires, uh, their, their billions immunize them from having to be citizens of really any nation and actually having any loyalty to anything, which is literally true. And then, and then what they can do is they can appeal to somebody to get them out. And, uh, and of course, because they won't have their yachts, they won't be able to escape and we'll see how many people actually like them. That's what people don't appreciate about rich people. You take away their, their yachts and they're powerless. They have nothing left. Uh, Jeb, this isn't what we were going to talk about first. Um, <laughs> What we were going to talk about first is you keep saying the words uh, Trump Flynn talk, and I didn't know what you were talking about. So, um, on top of all the news that's happening um, this week, which we'll, I'm sure, uh, get to in due course, let's lead with this. Tell me what is going on. Okay, so it's an article that appeared in the Huffington Post uh, about two hours and six minutes ago. 
uh, titled Leaks Suggest Trump's Own Team is Alarmed by His Conduct uh, by Christina Wilkie and this guy named S.V. Date, which I feel bad for the guy because I would just be like, hey, save the date, like all the time. Anyway, um, anyway, I'm not going to have to read very far, but uh, this is uh, this sort of accords with some things that you and I have been talking about in a previous episode. Um, President Donald Trump was confused about the dollar. Was it a strong one that's good for the economy or a weak one? So he made a call, except not to any of the business leaders Trump brought into his administration or even to an old friend from his days in real estate. Instead, he called his national security advisor, retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, according to two sources familiar with Flynn's account of the incident. Flynn has a long record in counterintelligence, but not in macroeconomics, and he told Trump he didn't know that it wasn't his area of expertise and that, perhaps, Trump should talk to an economist instead. Trump was not thrilled with that response, but that may have been a function of the time of day. Trump had placed the call at 3 a.m., And then sort of it goes down and there's another money quote here. Um, I have been in this town for 26 years. I've never seen anything like this, said Elliot Cohen, a senior State Department official under President George W. Bush and a member of his National Security Council. I genuinely do not think this is a mentally healthy president. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's full on terrifying, Jeb. That's news to me. I'm just absorbing this for the first time now. And that is somewhere, um, I think, on the corner of insane and hilarious, uh, but firmly in the district of it's really happening. So that's very terrifying. Elliot Cohen, correct me if I'm wrong, was the um, uh, and it, he was part of Obama's security apparatus that was part of a meeting, a preliminary meeting, to kind of okay the next phase of planning on the Yemen attack that happened, um, which Trump undertook. And he was basically the one who called out Trump for lying about how the Yemen attack was planned and okayed by the officials, right? That was that was an attack that, um, a military strike against, I think, ISIS in Yemen that was completely botched, which was figured out over a dinner table with Trump and Jared Kushner, um, and it ended up killing a Navy SEAL and an eight-year-old girl, and the target, who was supposed to be killed, escaped and is now taunting the Trump administration, sending out audio messages, and basically ISIS is using it as propaganda. That's that, Cohen, right? I, I don't believe so, um, but, I mean, at this point, like, there, there are so many... You know, uh, I mean, like that name, there's so many retreads that keep coming through. Uh, so like, you know, this is Elliot Cohen. Elliot Abrams is now uh, part of like being uh, considered for the Trump team. And then he goes back multiple administrations. And I, I don't believe that I mean, that Cohen had any involvement in that he might have called it out on Twitter, but I don't think he would have been on the planning staff just because. Of, there was uh, someone. There was someone part of Obama's team who was part of like basically what, what yeah. happened is the. This is my understanding. The human attack happened. It was a failure. The news got out about it, um, and then Trump said it was Obama's team that okayed this, and Sean Spicer said that it was authorized um, without any problems whatsoever and sent all the way to the top. It didn't have to kind of go through any further planning phases or um, okaying phases. And uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy, but it was it's, it's someone Cohen um, who's part of the who was part of the Obama administration and the security apparatus was like that is bullshit. I was part of those early planning meetings, and what we okayed was for it to go through a proper procedure 
of basically being vetted for its um, you know potential to be successful among intelligence folks, not to be decided on over a dinner table, which is what happened, and then it failed. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe they're two different guys. We we can certainly look it up at the break, but I mean that that planning too is is like part of the same kind of sphere of things to be frightened about because this is, you know, it's a big, uh, in addition to the people you mentioned, there were 15 other women and children were killed in that raid. Um, and, uh, yeah, like exactly as you said, the final, you know, the, the final, um, preparations for that were okayed at a dinner, uh, with, uh, his son-in-law with Trump's son-in-law, um, Jared Kushner, who, uh, who's, writers at the the new york observer uh admitted like anonymously that they literally had to dumb down their stories so that he could understand them um and uh what's his name bannon was supposedly at it and this was not held in, in like a full briefing of of generals this was just over a dinner uh and then combined with the other things that have happened recently with trump the the you know he uh uh called up malcolm turnbull the the pm of australia and uh um essentially just started lying to him about his, you know, his amazing electoral college victory and this total landslide he had, and then started berating, uh, Turnbull for an agreement that was already existing between Australia and the Obama administration for America to take some of the refugees that were being held in Australia. And then he allegedly, that was the the initial report was that he just hung up on him because he was fatigued. It was 5 PM. And kind of like, as we'd said before, you know, if, if, you know, you've had, a family member who has Alzheimer's and people start getting tired and irritable and not able to focus at 5 PM. That's a thing called sundowning. And there are so many things that this president does that make me think, Oh shit, this guy is sundowning. That, but then getting up at 3 AM to question whether or not a, a strong U S dollar is a good thing or not. Um, I'll just uh, put it in right now. So we don't have to revisit it later. I've just Googled it and it, the um, national security official from the Obama administration's name was Colin Carl, K A H L. He disputed Spice's description of the planning Thursday evening. Carlin tweets. She had hundreds of times said that the department of defense worked up a general proposal that asked for authorities to do raids in Yemen, but that the mission carried out Saturday was not specifically a part of that. Then president Obama did not make any decisions because he thought it represented an expansion in the war in Yemen and believed the Trump administration should assess how to proceed. And that's from uh, the Washington post from earlier this week. Um, I think that assessment of, if you look objectively at the actions carried out by this man, and it's always, you know, just a little too tantalizing and a little too low-hanging fruit to play armchair psychologist to the most powerful man in the world. But I was thinking about this this week, that he does seem to be exhibiting signs of at least a diagnosable personality disorder, and if not, mental illness. I, I think the personality disorder is diagnosable from 10 years back, but, uh, or more. Um, but yeah, like the, the, the constant irritability, the inability, like, so this article goes on to, to stress that he cannot read long briefing papers. He insists mm. on having everything in a one page summary. He otherwise doesn't read. He watches TV to see what is being said about himself, which if you wanted to be really sinister, this is a guy kind of m- piecing his own memory back together like memento or otherwise shows somebody who is incapable of sustained thought on any given issue. 
both of which are terrifying. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the old story in the Reagan White House was when they wanted to get him to understand briefings, they would just make movies for him. And so they would wheel in the projector and the movie. True? Yes. Yes. That is. Oh, wow. Like they, so when they would say like, you know, we need this bomber or something and, and they couldn't quite persuade him of, of the utility of a, a bomber, they would bring in a, a clearly made film strip from, uh, you know, the, whatever guy in DOD liaised with whatever contractor or something. And then in addition to that, uh, he was given his, he was sometimes given instructions on what to do, like stage directions, blocking, um, you know, over and above the stuff that a president needs to know for security. It's, you know, here, pause, wave, et cetera. And so he was managed uh, as this, you know, essentially figurehead because his mind wasn't all there. And yeah, I mean, he did have um, dementia, though, towards the end of while he was still serving, though, right? Like that's on the record. I, I, if I, and I, we did sort of talk about this before. If I remember correctly, Nancy Reagan never admitted that he had he had suffered dementia as president. But if you go back and watch that first debate with Walter Mondale in 84, that's a man who doesn't know where he is. And Oof. yeah, but the, the, the whole film strip thing, I mean, these these problems, uh, you know, predated that, uh, if I remember correctly. And in any event, like if you want to believe that that they're both perfectly mentally fine, the fact that you, you, you've now got a president who can't understand an issue and re- or refuses to understand it unless it is summarized to him as like one page bullet points and is getting all his news from watching fucking Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough. Like you know, live action beaker from the Muppets. Uh, here's, uh, here's I'm going to attempt to push back here, and here's why. Um, when George W. Bush was in power, he was characterized universally as being this complete moron, and was um, depicted often in political cartoons and stuff as as being a monkey, and he was always seen as this kind of childlike, idiotic figure. And I think that with the fullness of time, and I guess people get a little rose-tinted and nostalgic about past presidents, maybe even, you know, uh, to an absurd degree, but I think there has been a more full appreciation that George W. Bush was not an unintelligent man. Um, I think he was led astray by some villains, and I think that because he didn't have the ability to kind of push back against those voices like um, Rumsfeld and Cheney he was led down some really dark paths but I don't think the guy was nearly as stupid as he was characterized to be in the media at the time while the wars in the Middle East were failing and so that's why I'm like a little bit nervous about just jumping on board um, you know the hype train along with characterizing Trump as this mentally ill dude just because it's a very popular point of view at the moment he could just be shit he doesn't have to be crazy well, I mean, but there's this strain in, in journalism and also in among leftists in America of basically, you know, every Republican president since Eisenhower has, with the exception of Ford and, and H.W. Bush, has gotten progressively more evil. Uh, you know, you go Nixon to Reagan to, to, to W to Trump. And they get more conservative and more rightward. And so what happens is as soon as you get the new model that ramps up the evil and stupid and cranks down the sympathy, you go, boy, you know, the previous one was not a bad guy. And Mm. I mean, I remember Nixon being rehabilitated conversationally by my parents during 
the the uh, or by adults i should say in during the reagan administration well like look you know just give us that guy again you know he was a right, sharp right. one uh and then w was like well listen you know he's god you know reagan he at least raised some taxes and he could reach across the aisle and then now with w it's like well listen he was a humane guy who didn't say that all muslims were basically uh murderers and yeah. waiting but like yeah you know, I remember on the day that, um, I'm sorry, like the week before he left office, I, I you know, I, I got one of these like email forwards and it was, it was like 15 images strung together and they were just all large type things that had happened, <clears throat> pardon me, during the Bush administration that, you know, by then I'd even managed to forget about, but just the sheer litany of contempt, uh, for the democratic process and for, uh, um, you know, people who are not rich was so huge. And, and I'd forgotten that even during the presidency. And now I probably couldn't list, uh, you know, a, a full three, four pages of that. I would still have 11 to go. Um, and I, you know, the, as we forget these things, uh, some of the horrors that we just wish to forget go away uh, because we're no longer immersed in it. Uh, you know, I think we, we tend to lessen it. And, and the other thing I would say against that is that, I think everybody pretty much like with the exception of mainstream, uh, you know, media personalities who can't editorialize out, out of the gate. I think everybody was saying that Donald Trump was a spectacularly stupid human being with some really weird pathological behavior back in, in 2015. It's just that now all that is manifesting in ways that, that, uh, can manipulate vast amounts of power. Yeah, well, when you've got a support base that will almost be rallied by the fact that one of who, someone who they perceive as their own, which is ironic, um, is is you know being yelled at for uh, being a racist, being Islamophobic, being homophobic, that you know it almost gives the opposite effect to what was intended by calling that person and their policies out and their rhetoric, um, and and here we all are living in that, living in that result. Except for you, you get to be uh, you get to be far distant, and I you know I think we were we were going to do a bit on that. Do you want to uh, take a minute and come back? Yeah, let's do that. Right. Uh, after this short break, where we will hear a sample of Betsy DeVos, newly minted Secretary of Education, um, <laughs> we're going to talk about the international uh, feeling towards U.S. President Trump. You can't say definitively today that guns shouldn't be in schools? Well, I, I will refer back to uh, Senator Enzi and the school that he was talking about in Wapiti, Wyoming. I think probably there, I, I would imagine that there's probably a gun in the school to protect from potential grizzlies. As an American, I know that there are very few things outside of our borders. I know that there are cheaper prescription drugs in Canada and cheaper all the other kind of drugs in Mexico. I know that Europe is the place where many of the pornographers come from, and uh, pretty much everything else is, is Ocean and Rand McNally, and uh, luckily in my case, where Tim is. Um, and I, what interests me, because I'm immersed in this every day, is is the perspective of somebody who, who gets to do it voluntarily and gets to walk around and have media and commentators around him that have accented English and don't have to obsess about President Trump. So my question to you, Tim, is uh, uh, how are you doing out there? Um, I'm doing all right. 
unfortunately, even though we did flag this that we were going to um, try and talk about it last week, I kind of forgot that. And in my head, I kind of tend to immerse myself um, a lot more than the average bear with American media and American um, commentary. But you can't help but absorb biosmosis, the place that you're in. And in New Zealand, I feel like in some respects, we're only just now able getting getting able to think about other things and dedicate our front pages to things that aren't Trump. Um, that being said, I it actually was busy, so I missed it, but there was a march, and I'm not sure how big it was, uh, last night in Auckland, the city that I live in. Um, I'm not sure how big the numbers were, but that was specifically against the Muslim ban. So the protests and stuff are still happening internationally, and I think that's um, important to note. Um, I have a question about that really, really yeah. quickly. Is there a sense of, I mean, like... I, is there a sense of futility or, or, or something that you need to get past to go marching about the president of another country? Because I think, you know, Americans just don't do that. Like we don't, you know, there, there'll be in, in much of the, in the larger cities, you know, you can get enough, there's enough population density that you can get a bunch of Chileans together who could go demonstrate in like, you know, Tompkins Square Park or something about Augusto Pinochet. But mm. You know, I just think that that's kind of alien to a lot of American mindset, uh, a lot of Americans mindset of like, I'm going to go to a public square in my nation to talk about the leader of another nation. I mean, is that? Well, you know, I, like, it's what, interesting because yeah. um, I think probably the way that uh, I think New Zealand is like this. I think Australia is like this. Um, I think there's probably some other countries in the West that are like this as well. They're a little smaller like us. That American exceptionalism thing, I think we tacitly agree with it, even though we constantly bemoan the Americans and it's very popular for us to uh, kind of have jokes against Americans and to kind of universally hate Americans because they're the big, powerful country. We, it, it, When we protest against Trump in New Zealand, it's not against um, just another leader of a country it's like america is a very different kettle of fish from any other country in the world and i use american exceptionalism which is kind of funny because that's what the republicans have been uh, sort of using as a turn of phrase for so many decades now and i think the rest of the world actually agrees with that in some respects a lot more than for example certain parts of the democrat part democratic party and also Trump himself. I was actually just listening to some comments today that he really he shirks that label of American exceptionalism, which is something we won't get into now. But America is different. America is the leader of the world, and I think we all respect that. And like any leader of the world, um, because we live in democracies, we are open to ridicule it, and we have our fun, and uh, we have our jokes, and we have our commentary. But I think during um the obama era we had eight years of really respecting this world leader where all the top line stuff seemed fantastic and because we weren't um part of the sort of integrated fabric of the country itself we didn't get enough exposure from the outside looking in uh to some of the bad stuff to some of the nuances of how obamacare didn't work out so well for certain people um we just kind of saw this historic African-American leader of America in the early 2000s, which was an amazing thing, like turn of the 21st century, and, and they've got a black president, and he's articulate and rousing and progressive and a cool guy. 
And so to go from George W. Bush is like a president that even when I was a teenager, I was marching against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Like I was marching in Wellington up to parliament against that stuff when I was in high school. So we had this period of kind of really hating the leader and then loving the leader. And now we're back even further now that Trump's in charge. But the one thing that doesn't change, and I think this is true of a lot of countries around the world, is we've always got to respect the the might and the power and not just like economically or militarily but the cultural importance of america is like really inescapable i i guess maybe maybe that wouldn't occur to me i I probably would have occurred to me if i thought about it before asking the question but i'm trying to be you know i'm trying to ask you the amiable i don't know the answer just tell me kind of question but, <laughs> yeah you're playing the audience surrogates yeah yeah uh, but also Pretty like i you know just as an american like I, it wouldn't even occur to me to think the way the way you might think because why would i not think like an american the best way of thinking possible <laughs> right? but that's the thing like i think that a lot of people in the left in america it's tricky i don't know if i'm going to articulate this correctly but it's like I think we've got a more rose-tinted vision of America, which is more similar to how the Republicans and the Conservatives view their home country um, than people on a lot of people on the left do in America. I think I, I think if you judge by outward rhetoric, that's fair. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of elements of the left here that have a kind of cheerless oppositional attitude toward the United States. Uh, you know, I've never been one of those people. I, I definitely, you know, will it, it, at the right moment get all, you know, my tears will, my eyes will well up at a national anthem at the national anthem at a, a sporting event or something. Or, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'll occasionally watch like CNN's the sixties, which is just basically, you know, or, or the eighties or whatever. And it's as much CNN footage as they can manage. And, and I'll see something and I'll be like, yeah, good on you, America. <laughs> you know, and like long may she wave. And uh but like I think a lot of that from the left comes from just needing to push back against the um that American exceptionalism attitude of conservatives that admits no error. I mean, you know, when you have the the Texas Board of Education, which is large enough, they buy enough textbooks that essentially textbook makers adapt their text to uh, you know to to meet with the uh, the Texas BO, BOE's approval. Because that way they can they can sell more books. You know, when they basically try to take slavery out of American history texts or when they do engage with it, go, many slaves were happy. They had a great old time. And the you know, the the American Indian is somebody that, yes, well, we may not have honored some treaties, but they have their own reservations now. And the whole subject of genocide doesn't Mm -hmm. exist. Um, yeah. Or where, you know, uh, like Jesus divinely inspires the Constitution and, and it makes you just have to be like, no, look, we're a genociding bunch of slave owners who basically wrote this beautiful, you know, infallible document to enshrine land as having more power than people. And and so you, you wind up with this really churlish sounding attitude, but it's not your, the totality of your belief. It's just you have to keep throwing that out there because otherwise you just get drowned in this this ahistorical hogwash and endless apologia that is being marshaled to defend something even more odious in the future. It's so interesting that you bring that up because we've just celebrated, well, 
some people would say celebrated, other people would say commemorated uh, Waitangi Day in New Zealand. So in the same way that America is a nation that was founded by guns, and this is, I have a lot of arguments with my friends who like, um, I'll give you an example. One of my friends posted on Facebook recently uh, a video of a young girl who looks to be about maybe 11 or 12 years old, and she's unfurling a birthday present and it's a um, rifle of some description she's got tears streaming down her eyes she's so happy that it's there and it was just comment after comment of um, New Zealand person saying this is so fucked up what the fuck what the hell is this they're sick they're mental da 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 I'm like this here's the thing because <laughs> I'm kind of a contrarian anyway so I'll just say stuff like this even if I don't necessarily believe it just to test the water but with guns I actually think we do have kind of quite different attitudes about it and I think that American the American viewpoint deserves a little bit of respect and context around it but what I was trying to say to people during that on that thread was um our experience of guns especially americans with guns is so tied into like school shootings and media coverage of people going mental and killing each other with them that that is our exposure to firearms we don't see them out and about in the streets we don't really see them anywhere unless you live in the country on farms and stuff where you go rabbit shooting and that sort of thing um so we we the average new zealander we are really urban based and we do not have an experience with guns whatsoever whereas in a lot of states in america like texas for example it's like very much part of the culture you go down to the range it's like a thing you do with your family you learn gun safety you learn how to shoot it properly and in the same way um that you know we learn sport and we grow up with rugby here in new zealand there are some families that do the same thing with guns and a lot of people are going to say, yeah, it's a false equivalence because one of them's a goddamn weapon that you're using for sport and, and the other one is a, a firearm. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Pig's bladder yeah. on a, a pig's bladder on a, on, a, um, on a bit of grass. But just the experience of guns is different. And sorry, all of this to say... We just had our national day, Waitangi Day, and that is in commemoration of the fact that in uh, 1840, New Zealand, the British settlers who came here signed a treaty called the Treaty of Waitangi with um, a collective of the native people of New Zealand, the Māori. And we've got so much national shame about it that we can't really celebrate it as a national day in the way that you guys do with Thanksgiving even though if we're going to go an apples for apples comparison, we've got way less blood on our hands. Um, I won't get into the kind of minutiae of the land wars and the, the history that we've got, but, but you know, it's that age-old story. The white people did come here and kind of fuck over the brown-skinned people who were here first. Um, but we did it to a lesser extent, for sure, uh, than the Americans did. But we have you, got you could just start now. shouting, we learned it by watching you, and, you know, like all... <laughs> As as an American raised on that public service announcement, I 100% get that. <laughs> I think there is some natural benefit that we never talk about here, but to the fact that it happened in 1840. So it actually did happen a, you know, a long time after um, other places had been settled. So 
the kind of dominant European viewpoints of of um, you know the native savages could have evolved a little bit by the time we actually started to become a nation. Um, but we've got an awful history as well. Every country, I think, that's been dominated by the British Empire has got this awful history of coming in, fucking over the native people. And America seems like the best country in the world at brushing past that and just not thinking about it or talking about it. And yet New Zealand, we I think we do carry a real shame in our psyche and in our national DNA about it. And I don't think that's the worst thing in the world because um, I think the alternative is that you pretend like it doesn't, it didn't happen. Yeah, and and I mean to me, like I can enjoy Thanksgiving. I was a history major, and I can still enjoy Thanksgiving. I can. It, it's not easy to have studied history and and have a great time outdoors in this country, you know, in any place that is recognizable and was written about in a you know like a, a history text because there's probably going to be something there that. It's pretty atrocious. I mean, the state that I live in was just went gangbusters during uh, Jim Crow. You know, uh, it doesn't make it less beautiful naturally, you know, and and you can't it doesn't inhibit my ability to to appreciate and celebrate the aspirational things that we we try to tell ourselves uh, about ourselves at Thanksgiving or, you know, on, on certain holidays. But I, I feel like you know, if, if you don't know your own history, how, how can you possibly improve on it? If we're going to pretend that everything was fine, then what incentive do we have to do to fix anything now? If we can just say, well, hey, we'll, we'll just wait 20 years and most of the people who were victims of this will die out and then we can pretend it didn't happen. So then you here's know. my question to you. Do you think that that unabashed patriotism that I think can only happen by compartmentalizing things like Thanksgiving and what its origins are? Do you see that that is unhelpful? Like by your own admission of going, I can enjoy Thanksgiving. It's, um, you know, I can enjoy taking a break to enjoy the things around me, the natural beauty, my family and that sort of thing. But also recognizing that it's got this atrocious kind of origin and history to it. Do you not see an issue with that? Well, I think maybe the issue would be that I, I, my willingness to applaud myself for my savvy uh, perhaps inhibits my willingness to go out and do something, um, you know, actually productive uh, mm. about, uh, you know, seeking some sort of like remediation for this past sin. Um, uh, I, I certainly, I mean, I, you know, so I'm, I won't claim to have, have reached apex wokeness or something uh, from that. But I think, you know, I, I, I'm generally suspicious of somebody who doesn't struggle with kind of, um, you know, di- dichotomous ideas about their own sure. country in their head. You know, if you are yeah. wholly on board with exactly one narrative, um, I, I'm, I'm a little worried about you. Uh, <laughs> I think that's healthy. I think that's, um, and that doesn't have to be unproductive as well in either direction and like a kind of progressive agenda sense of the word or in enjoying the things around you without having to be on ad, uh, you know antidepressants all the time kind of a sense um getting back to the original kind of point in question though yeah that yeah. i think the international experience of of trump so far um like it's really it genuinely has shaken the rest of the world i think people were shocked like on our 21st of January, because we were a day ahead of you guys, we were just like, holy fuck. And the recent episode, particularly in our neck of the woods with um, 
what happened with Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia, with his first call uh, with Trump, where Trump ended up hanging up on him, as you were mentioning earlier. Like, that was that was the front page of every newspaper, even here in New Zealand. And I saw all of the big um, Australian ones as well, Sydney Morning Herald, uh, all the big papers in Melbourne. It was, it was, you know, that that's a big thing for us, for all of us. And that even, guy's a massive asshole too, right? It, like, yeah, well, it's interesting. Malcolm Turnbull is um, is a pretty big asshole, but because they just had Tony Abbott, everyone's kind of desensitized and yeah, a yeah. little bit grateful that he's not there anymore. So it's um, so it happens know, to you comparable. too, or it happens to them too, I should say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Tony Abbott was an enormous piece of shit. Like, a terrible, terrible man. Uh, we just had our first phone call, Bill English, who's our, um, I think his official title is acting prime minister at the moment, because our leader, John Key, just stepped down because he got bored of winning all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he he got the phone call, uh, I think it was like maybe just before or after the Super Bowl, because it was on our Waitangi day. So he had to like just mission into a car to take the call. There's some photos of, of Bill English on the phone to him. But it, and I know this is a drop in the ocean of things that are going on at the moment. But again, I was just like, fucking don't they usually figure out times with these sorts of things? Like, aren't there people, middlemen and diplomats and things that go, okay, we better not call on this day because it's, it's you know, the national day of um, commemorating the treaty that made them a nation state. So he's probably going to be at the Marae and doing certain ceremonies with the Māori and that sort of stuff. But <laughs> he just had to, like, duck into a car at a random point in the day and talk to Trump for, like, 15 minutes about probably how great Trump is, I, I imagine. Yeah, God. Well, first of all, I, I assume the briefing book that he has is, has been prepared by Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon. So, like, every record of that day has been purged from it. I mean, if it shows up, it's like, it's probably like New Zealand baller day. Everybody go out and act like a baller. Okay, well, he's, you know. The big story that I hope the rest of the world, like, I guess New Zealand and Australia and places like us and in Britain that we start paying more attention to, I've got to say, Theresa May is doing her absolute best to um, normalize Trump and the GOP to get in with them at the moment. But I hope that one role that we can play as the rest of the world is by calling out this fucking crazy developing relationship between um, the White House, specifically, I won't say America, between Trump and Russia and Putin. Because that is, is just like very scary and unsettling and odd. And I think he, out of all of the phone calls um, that he made in his, his sort of like three days of calling all the national leaders around the place and catching up with all of them personally, the Russia phone call was an hour and it's the only one there's no record of because they said that the machine wasn't working. Like, that's fucking crazy. These are the same guys who are making all these conspiracy theories based on very little and yet, like, here's a real crazy thing that's happening and developing before our eyes and I think that we need to pay way more attention to it. See, actually, it's it's funny that the Russia thing is, is bigger for you um, than, than it is for me because I I just I don't know maybe maybe this is just me grasping at straws or or uh, you know God I use this expression a lot whistling past the graveyard, um, but like the 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 thing. I, I almost hope more is that every other nation on earth just constantly like, I, I hope that there's just a, a column in every you know, newspaper around the globe that just goes like shit Trump made up today. Cause I'm not so much worried about, uh, um, 
what he's going to do with Russia, because I, I think it, it ultimately is a lot more limited than, than we imagine. Um, but just the idea that like, you know, if, if they, if, if the Trump administration goes to war with the idea of journalism and fact with as much relentlessness as it is shown so far, I just want there to be a record out there. So we, you know, maybe as like a, a, a thing of last resort, you can take somebody and go, Look at literally any other newspaper in the world. Mm. Like CNN's fake news. Well, how the fuck did CNN buy New Zealand? Like, do, the, you know, the is, pro- is, I yeah. totally get that. And that is a, a lovely vision of what hopefully will happen. Uh, here's the problem with it. And maybe we should wrap this, um, this bit of the show on this is that I think the world over journalism has been in the last 20 years in this race to the bottom of, and I think part, I mean, this is this is just me um, guessing at this point, but I think they fucked up how to put news online and make money from it without um, uh, just destroying their own business models. And I think journalism was in this race to the bottom of generating shareable content online, which generates so little revenue um, and getting a big TV audience for very light, fluffy shows because that's the people who were left watching TV to get these broad audiences. And so everyone started going more and more base. They started cutting all the um, journalism staffs, paying the people who were there less and less, which just removes any drive for any career journalists who have been in the game doing the real gumshoe, like hard-nosed investigative reporting to stick around. So they all leave. And what you're left with, and this isn't just America, this is everywhere, is a lot of very young, inexperienced people running the majority of newsrooms now. And in New Zealand, like, parliaments and governments are hard to understand. I barely understand New Zealand's. I definitely don't understand America's, and I'm very interested in it. But they're very complicated institutions. They well, the, take the, a lot the of first time thing is and we have a, It's called Congress out. here. That's, I'm just, like, I'm going to throw that out there. Just, <laughs> that's we a turn freebie. The podcast into civics lessons. <laughs> it's, if you're not going to get it at school anymore because Betsy DeVos is here, we're going to take it upon ourselves. America has a bicameral legislature. <laughs> so, I hope Sorry. you're right, and I don't <laughs> think you are. I think um, you're being too optimistic about what the newspapers are going to report on, because I think it's so easy to get a tweet that. Trump sends out and turn that into column inches and it's so hard to look at what he's actually doing at a policy level and turn that into a story because you have to understand and be able to communicate so much context to an audience around that so I think that's a big danger and the silver lining of course is that because Darth Vader is now in charge of the nukes uh, a lot of people have been throwing money at different journalistic outfits, which is um, arming them back up, which is, it's sad that it had to get to this, but it's nice that eventually people have kind of woken up to that. Man, all that just makes me want to really argue about journalism and like there just isn't time for that. <laughs> like that's <laughs> Besides, we can come back to this probably forever. Uh, and we should. Yeah. But I think um, for now, Jeb, this is this has been a pretty broad one. Um, I don't know if we've got time for another segment, but should I just maybe throw a little bit of um, the tidbits of what's been happening in the news this week and we'll just have a real quick convo on that to round off on? Sure, yeah. So uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch has been nominated by President Trump and he's 49 years old. He's a federal court judge from Colorado. He's, he's been nominated as the new Supreme Court judge. Um, 
replacement for Antonin Scalia, who died uh, like this time last year. So, uh, yeah, for those listening in places like New Zealand, what's supposed to happen is when a Supreme Court judge dies, you usher in a new one pretty fucking quickly. The president puts forward their nominee and then the Senate votes on it. Mitch McConnell, who was the Senate majority leader, um, decided to hold it up because it was election year, which was that literally without precedent? Like, had that ever happened before? Uh, no. Uh, so basically, uh, McConnell's argument was the American people deserve to vote on who their next Supreme Court justice would be. And the thing is, they did. They did in 2012. They voted for Barack Obama and they said, we want this person to nominate Supreme Court justices. Uh, so the Republican Party said, well, it's unprecedented to uh, nominate and then uh, confirm a Supreme Court justice in an election year. And then, of course, basically every print and, and TV outlet and every Democrat went, come again? No. Um, <laughs> in fact, here, here, here are the, all the times that it had happened. Um, so basically, they, they were just uh, betting that, uh, you know, that they could do it. That, you know, what it was was so, you know, uh, Obama nominates Merrick Garland, uh, Merrick, like uh, John Merrick from the Ele- Elephant Man, Gar- uh, Garland, uh, who is basically a moderate. Um, you know, this is a guy who, who could have been nominated by a Republican uh, 40 years ago. Mm. Uh, you know, that that's that's how and the Republican were, Party has drifted. Sorry to interrupt, but there were even Republicans on the record last year before Obama announced who his nominee would be, saying that Merrick Garland would be a fine choice. And then once it was Obama's idea and he formally announced, then they withdrew their support for his nomination. Uh, One of them, if I remember correctly, was uh, current Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch. So, um, yeah. Uh, So anyway, what they did was they just bet that, uh, you know, well, Hillary Clinton will lose and then we'll get a Republican and we can nominate. And if uh, she doesn't lose, we'll just obstruct her forever. And in fact, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, good, good mavericks that the, the Democrats are relying on to step up to Trump, like uh, uh, John McCain said, well, we're going to we're going to oppose her and stonewall her as much as possible. We're not going to let Hillary Clinton have uh, a nominee. So, I mean, if Hillary Clinton were president now, there's no guarantee that uh, they would have voted on Merrick Garland. Uh, yeah, they, 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 they might have just said, like, hey, we'll just wait another four years and hope that you're one termer. Uh, so now, oh, right. of course, sorry, I didn't understand that. Do you, I mean, you don't think that's hyperbole? Are you, no, no, shit, I, I like. Look, that is I a mean, dark it, view of the GOP. I, I think anybody who thinks that the GOP is going to continue to play by any rules whatsoever, unless they are compelled to by being outmaneuvered and outnumbered, um, is kidding themselves. Uh, they, you know, the the GOP. I don't think has any real. Um, ethical moral or or principled guidance other than the the complete hoovering of money out of the working and middle class toward um you know the top one percent and anything that will accomplish that will be done to see it done and i i think the sooner the democratic party realizes that essentially from a legislative standpoint they are in a a street fight um, you know, and, and until they realize that they're everything they do is going to be a complete goddamn waste of time. Uh, the trouble is judge Gorsuch is 49 years old and he looks good too. I reckon the guy's going to live to be a hundred years old, which means yeah, thanks. because of the Supreme court, um, <laughs> 
judges, uh, they're, they're just there indefinitely. Nothing can remove them, right? They have to die or quit. They can be impeached. Um, oh, yeah. But that would require the Congress to impeach him. So you would need, um, you would need a, a simple majority, a uh, simple Democratic majority in the House and then uh, a, a two-thirds Democratic majority in the Senate. And then, of course, he would actually have to commit some sort of high crime to do it. Jeb, no one's, no one's impeaching that man. It's too good looking. Um, um, some other stuff briefly that happened. I like what has happened to do with the Muslim ban might have changed just in the time that Jeb and I have been speaking. But if you're like just kind of trying to figure out what's happened so far, there was an executive order that came down from the White House that we're pretty sure Steve Bannon wrote and that um, Trump signed, which temporarily banned immigrants from seven majority Muslim countries. And uh, people immigrating from Syria banned them indefinitely. Uh, That order came down. Then the acting Attorney General, Sally Yates, announced that the Department of Justice would not be legally defending the order because she didn't believe in its constitutionality. Then Trump fired her. And then a U.S. District Court judge from Seattle put a pause on it, again questioning its constitutionality. And now it's in a court who are expected to rule on whether or not the ban on the ban will remain in place. And we're just waiting to hear back any second now. Is, 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 have I sort of roughly characterized that correctly? Uh, yeah. No, j- so just to add a couple of things, uh, Yates declined to enforce it uh, in part because it had gotten its shit stomped in federal court. And I don't know if it was 0 and 5 at that point, but it was a, definitely an offer. It, it still hasn't won in federal court. Uh, I think actually there might have been one ruling in Boston. Uh, if, if I'm, I'm not sure. I know that the, a judge was sympathetic to the Trump administration, but I can't remember what his actual ruling was. Uh, but at the time, it had not won. And a, an attorney general has the discretion to say, if I believe this is an unworkable law that is fundamentally flawed and a court will find it such, uh, the attorney general has discretion not to waste time and money doing that. Um, that's her prerogative. It was Trump's prerogative to fire her. Uh, you write about the uh, 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 Seattle uh, um, judge staying the, the order nationwide. That's now gone down to the district court, if I remember, or circuit court in California. And that's a three judge panel. Two of them are Democratic. One was appointed by Bush, if I remember correctly. Um, and they're going to they they had the uh the hearing for it was today but the ruling will probably not be out until friday uh or maybe the weekend so we we won't know how they voted yet um the now the petition i'm sorry well ask your question sorry i i was just gonna say um i mean shit i have no understanding of how this works with the court system in the states and i we're getting into very complicated terrain now where i feel like everyone's finding out these new bits of the institution as this thing pushes through but do you yourself know what happens either way if it if if either the the stay is um upheld in this court decision or if it's struck down does it go can it go to another court does it go to a court of appeals like where does it go if they uphold the stay, it will go to the Supreme Court, which um, given that it's a 4-4 split on conservative to, I won't even say liberal, but just centrist and then slightly left. Um, if that's a tie, then it gets punted down to uh, the, the 
the circuit court's ruling, um, which, you know, if, if they're upholding the, the original district court ruling, then that would be binding. So um, the, the, uh, the EO would fail on, on those accounts. So right. if the, the circuit court finds that the, um, uh, the district court is an error, they can overturn it. Um, but they can also make recommendations if I remember correctly. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, everybody, like every journalist, it's always funny. Like when these things happen, because, you know, um, you know, you've got the, the people who, whose normal beat is like, well, I cover, you know, LGBTQ affairs in Washington and then, you know, they got to get on Twitter and have something to say about this. And then usually they, they figure out how the appellate system works again by waiting for Ari Melber <laughs> to tweet like an explanation. Um, and I mean, I, I used to know this like back to front, uh, thanks to college and, and, you know, government courses. And, and now I'm kind of in the same boat where I have to relearn the process every time. Well, like, oh yeah, that's it right. It's like an absolute shit storm. So anyone who does know how it works, my hat goes off to them. Um, a couple of other short bits of news, just as we wrap up, Nancy DeVos, who we talked about last episode, um, she's in hooray. It was a completely split decision. And so, uh, vice president Pence went down as the president of the Senate and cast the deciding vote, um, to make her the secretary of education of America. Um, which is just great news, just great news for everybody, especially the youth. And, uh, oh, I should mention as well to do with the Muslim ban that um, Trump sent out a series of tweets. Uh, I'm assuming in the middle of the night. I can't remember the time code on those ones. But basically saying um, that he couldn't understand how the courts, one different and equal branch of government outside of himself, could have this much power. And that if there's a terrorist attack, we should all blame that judge who put a stay on the executive order. So that's, um, that's responsible leadership for you. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and if your goal is to make yourself the sole legitimate authority in the United States, you're doing a really great job of that with that kind of attitude by by basically trying to turn citizens against the validity, validity of the court system by saying that the actual judicial system is endangering them. Uh, and if the, the circuit court upholds this and if the Supreme Court does, I, I can't imagine the the you know, apocalyptic reaction that is going to be generated from him. And, you know, this is not just coming from Trump. This is a very, very fertile field that the Republican Party has been uh, has been tilling for pretty much half a century of any time a ruling on the merits of law goes against them. They decry activist judges uh, who are who are legislating from the bench and uh, for people who who love American traditions, they they sure hate it when um, when they're used uh, against them uh, legitimately. So uh, Trump isn't the only person who's been who's shouting this sort of thing. Um, there, there is an entire, you know, fifty percent of the the major political parties in the U.S. have been saying this for pretty much like living memory for most people. So you, nobody's going to say, "Hey, this guy crossed the line." Well, so a lot of people are going to say that, right? But there are going to be a lot of people who are going to just see him as being part of a greater continuum of delegitimizing anything other than what a Republican leader has to say. And that's really scary. Well, this is good. If he gets rid of the courts, that's one less branch of government we have to learn stuff about and teach people in our civics podcast, Jeb. you got yeah, def- to look at the bright side, man. So the, uh, two other things I, I just want to say really quickly. One, I, I yeah. last week I completely spaced on the whole, the fact that the vice president can break the tie, uh, which is stupid of me, because um, that's like 
fourth grade civics. That's not even high school. So you know, like everybody learns that. Um, uh, I just like it just seems so odd that that would even need to happen. And of and then of course it is like the fact that it happened is nuts. Um, yeah. Uh, but then the second thing was, you know, the upholding this this uh, this stay isn't unreasonable on a lot of like on a lot of bases uh, bases. Like it is extraordinarily chaotic, and it it is shown that it misapplies. Uh, or it, or it, that it applies the American immigration and refugee system in wildly dispropor- disparate manner manners rather. God, I'm like, get a sentence out, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've been and, we've been talking for a while, G, but it's okay. And that's a legitimate challenge, right? So, like, if if, if the if the the law is unequally applied, just simply by the chaos of its rolling out, that could be enough to and not the law, the order, enough to stay it. In which case, all the Trump administration has to do is just rewrite it in a more comprehensive and comprehensible manner. You know, again, this was something that uh, the Steves, uh, the evil Steves, uh, white supremacists Bannon and Miller, basically just sort of. You know, Steve's uh, such an, a hard name to make sound evil. So when you say the evil Steves, it's just like it's a great gag. Yeah, the, like sorry, th- they're they're like the two guys at the frat who just high five a little too hard. I mean, that's usually the evilest a Steve gets. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like so, these guys went through and, and said, "Hey, you know, fuck the lawyers. We know better," and rewrote this thing. And basically, if if they just run it through the lawyers, or run it through some lawyers that that actual sane people would hire. You know, this might come back in just a matter of weeks and and be fully instated, and there won't be a whole lot we can do about it until there are actual harms, and you can you can uh, you know take the the proper functioning of the law and 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 find a victim and then work through the court case that way. The other one, the other argument you can make is that, and and perhaps this is what will happen, uh, or what already did happen is that Trump himself on the campaign trail spent starting in December of 2015 was calling for a Muslim ban. And then he keeps yeah. referring to this on Twitter as a Muslim ban. Yeah. So you and can make the Sally argument. Yates was referencing as well, that there was context for this. this. There was commentary. There were things that were stated before this executive order came out, which are coloring how to interpret it legally. Exactly. So you, you can basically say like, it, you know, we can ignore the implementation, uh, unequal implementation of it. We can ignore the chaos. We can go right. We can drill down that the intent and like of, of the people who wrote the law, if you want to be an originalist scholar, the intent, <laughs> of, yeah, like, the, the, the intent of the people who wrote the law was a, a Muslim ban, which is a clear violation of the First Amendment. It's done. And then that would be it would be very difficult for them to draft a new law you know that had the same effects without the same spirit being behind it and in this case this would be one of the few times that uh uh trump's rhetoric on twitter uh, apart from getting him on the news and provoking a lot of outrage from people who you know can't actually change anything you know this might actually get him into material trouble which so that'll be interesting to see especially if it you know uh if for some reason he winds up muzzled a little bit afterward well, only one way to find out. Tune in next week for another episode of American Dictator. Thanks very much, Jim. Thank you, Tim. He's issued 20 or 21 executive actions since he took office, and it seems like we're covering one of them most days. I would love to talk to you one about the human impact of caused, opening up the Dakota and Keystone pipelines, of taking these... It caused these- tremendous chaos and confusion at airports all around the world. Uh, there's now a, a court case with your Justice Department 
it's probably going to take it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Of but course, it's a huge story. No, it is. But there are other stories. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 